Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. You find yourself confused, or forgetting why you went into another room. Normal life experience or the beginnings of dementia? Is it my memory? Tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening on Call with the Prairie Doc. I am Dr. Deb Johnston, your Prairie Doc this evening. There are many changes we go through as we travel as we age, though some are more troubling than others. First, let's take a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. It's a true or false question tonight. Dementia is easily diagnosed with a blood test. True or false? Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book the Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about dementia as they are sent or called in to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888 376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. The earlier you submit your questions, the better the chance we can respond. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. David Schlegel, a psychiatrist with Avera Medical Group University Psychiatry Associates in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. Matthew Simmons, a neurologist with Monument Health in Rapid City, South Dakota. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Matt, I want to particularly thank you because um, although I had quite a bit of time to work on Dr. Schlegel and nag him until he agreed to join us, uh, you were kind enough to step in last minute for us when the neurologist that was originally going to do on the show with us uh, got drafted into duty at the hospital as a hospitalist. So I just want to send a reminder out there to everybody, COVID-19 is here COVID-19 is bad. COVID-19 is killing people. It's filling our hospitals up. Please, everybody, be very careful. Wash your hands, wear your masks, socially distance, think really hard about your Thanksgiving plans. And I'm pretty darn sure that both of you gentlemen would echo that plea to everybody. So please, everybody, be careful. So I'd, I'd like to start with a little bit of background on you. Um, Matt, would you start us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a neurologist in Rapid City. Oh, okay. Um, so I um, attended medical school at uh, Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And from there, moved on to a uh, neurology residency program at the University of Minnesota and finished my training there in general neurology. And then I uh, did a three-year rotation with the Air Force in Alaska. 
and in general neurology practice. And from there, um, we moved to Rapid City and I've been there for 28 years now. Wow, Alaska to Rapid City, that's uh, a, a bit of a change. The winters I imagine are just a little nicer here. Oh yes, um, we enjoy the weather here. Um, and uh, I was gonna say that my, my, so I'm in general neurology practice and then I, I do uh, also uh, function as associate dean for the University of South Dakota School of Medicine. We have a clinical campus in Rapid City. Great. Well, and I know that uh, David is a, an instructor too for the medical students and the, the residents here in, in Sioux Falls. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, originally from Sioux Falls, uh, undergraduate at University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities medical school at Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Uh, residency for psychiatry was University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Then I also stayed there for an additional year to do a geriatric psychiatry fellowship. Um, most of the last several years have been uh, in practice in Wisconsin. Uh, just moved back to Sioux Falls area about three years ago to be a bit closer to family. And we're so glad to have you and your, your specialty here. That's such a huge need for patients. Dementia is a big, a big problem for families and patients and for us primary care doctors. So we really appreciate having the expertise of our neurology and our uh, psychiatry experts to help guide us through helping these patients. So. Let's get to some questions, everybody. Please call in and, and ask us your questions. The sooner you get them in, the higher the chance that we'll be able to talk about them and, and answer them thoroughly. So um, here's a question that somebody came in. I think this is a really, really valuable and good question. How much does genetics, does hereditary play a role in developing dementia? I'm gonna direct that one to you, Matt. Okay, so um, it's probably a fairly complex process in most patients. Um, I will say that when we see, uh, for example, early onset dementia or early onset Alzheimer's disease being a form of, of dementia, that the risk of that being genetic is uh, significantly greater than if someone develops dementia later in life um, or as an example, late onset Alzheimer's disease. So. Certainly genetics plays a role, uh, depending on what the cause of the dementia is. Um, it varies quite a bit from patient to patient, uh, again, depending on the type of dementia. Um, but there, there certainly can be uh, a strong family history in some cases. Um, the most common uh, early on, uh, well, the most common hereditary uh, dementia that we would see is Alzheimer's disease, like early onset Alzheimer's disease. But there are other disorders that are um, genetically transmitted, such as Huntington disease, uh, some forms of Parkinson disease, and that um, that can be associated with dementia as well. So you mentioned um, early onset dementia, and for our viewers there, can you give us an idea of what that means? Sure. Um, so, so I, I, Dr. Schlegel might know the specific. Uh, definition, but it, it's going to be when people develop dementia, um, for example, under the age of 65 might might be a, a common cutoff to define early onset dementia. Um, but there are there are patients who, you know, develop dementia in their 40s and 50s 
sometimes. Um, and so it can, it can have a remarkably early onset, uh, even though the majority of cases, of course, uh, develop later in life. Absolutely. Yeah. I think like so many things, the answer is it's a combination of of lifestyle, luck, <laughs> uh, environmental influences, and genetic influences. So, all right. Yes. If I might just add a couple of things too. Please. You know, for the genetic, uh, that's absolutely right. It's it's complex, and it's definitely true that there are not very many genes that would be what people classically think of uh, as dominant genes. But there have been four genes that have been identified for Alzheimer's. They're not routinely tested for, uh, in part because they only account for about 1% of the cases. Uh, Presenilin 1 and 2 would be a couple of these. Uh, but, uh, you know, if we're talking about risk factors, and I'm sure we'll come back to this later, uh, the single biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's, which accounts for most of the dementias, would be age. But there are a lot of different risk factors involved. You know, I think that's a great segue. Let's talk a little bit about risk factors for dementia. Uh, first, let's start with the ones that we can't do anything about. Obviously, age. You know, we're all, we're all going to get older and we're all going to have that risk factor. What else? What other risk factors? Yeah, so it depends on what you're talking about. Uh, again, if we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, which accounts for at least 60 to 70% of cases of dementia, some studies suggest more, but there's some controversy with that. Um, then you're, you're really gonna be talking about ages probably being the single biggest risk factor. Um, after that, though, there's a lot of other things that some might be, uh, I think, common sense, some of them might not be. Uh, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure can be risk factors. Um, people's uh, diets can influence this, their exercise levels. Uh, previous education can influence either to the good or to the bad as far as uh, risk factors go. Um, and, th and then there's going to be a, a number of other things uh, that uh, uh, are slipping my mind right now, but uh, Matt uh, might be able to. Yeah, I can, I can jump yeah. in with a couple. Um, you know, one that's gained a lot of attention is uh, traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been um, highlighted in those folks who have had repetitive concussions. And um, you'll, you'll see that, uh, for example, it became a big issue with uh, some of the NFL players as an example. So we, we do um, have to put that in, into the list of risk factors. That uh, brings up a question that was posed to me today, and I didn't really know a good way to answer it, but how about, you know, single brain injuries? Uh, I'm in a car accident, I got a concussion. Uh, what's the evidence that that's going to increase my risk on down the road? Classically, oh. th those are included. So I assume it's not as big a risk as those uh, individuals who have those repetitive head injuries. Mm -hmm. So Right. I mean, we don't necessarily think of a single traumatic injury as a clear indicator of a of a progressing disorder um, but it um, it does impact a person's cognitive reserve and i and i heard um, dr schlegel allude to that like how education and how certain lifestyle factors can um, enhance a person's resilience in a sense by building up cognitive reserve so if someone sustains a brain injury uh, from trauma, they they may impact 
uh, for example, their ability to learn new things and their uh, overall cognitive reserve. So if later in life they develop uh, you know, the early features of Alzheimer's disease or they have some little strokes or something, their ability to sort of bounce back from that is gonna be reduced. You know, one thing that uh, a lot of my patients talk with me about, and even my own family members talk a lot about, is those brain games that they play on their iPads and, and those things. What's the evidence for, for that kind of a technique to try to protect your brain? There is some evidence that some of these things can be helpful, particularly things like crossword puzzles and Sudoku have been identified as having some protective effect. But a lot of the companies that propose that they have uh, technical programs that can improve really are not operating on any evidence-based uh, premise for that. Uh, so uh, generally speaking, I think those are not uh, really supported. Sounds like you agree with that, Matt. Yeah, I, I think that they get a lot of hype. And, and on the other hand, there's no harm, of course, um, to participating in those things typically. Um, unless it's something that's costing you a lot of money or something like that. But if it's just sort of becomes a leisure activity that you like to participate in, um, there, thankfully there's really no harm. But I would agree that the evidence uh, indicating that they're beneficial is very scant. Um, on the other hand, there, is, there are some things that have gained attention in terms of people who uh, engage in uh, so certain social interactions, um, people that learn new things that, um, you know, for example, learn a new language or learn how to play a musical instrument or, or um, you know, continue their education throughout their lifetime. Uh, those, th that type of brain stimulation is thought to be beneficial. Um, part of it correlates, you know, with some some of the fancy imaging that we have these days where we can actually see the brain thicken up um, with certain types of um, activities, certain kinds of stimulation. Um, and on the contrary, you can say that sedentary activities or passive activities, um, for example, watching television. Now, of course, we are happy to use television with the show to convey important information, but um, sedentary activities that involve, for example, just passively watching television for extended periods of time um, is not thought to be very stimulating and, and, and does not enhance uh, brain health. So no binging Netflix for extended periods of time uh, if you, if you want to keep your brain sharp and active. Take up, take up a new language instead. So. Yeah, excellent. So uh, before our first break here, I think uh, here's a good question. We talk a lot about dementia. We talk a lot about Alzheimer's. Um, David, could you kind of clarify for our viewers, what's the difference? Sure. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. So dementia would be the umbrella that is over a number of different diagnoses. Um, Alzheimer's disease, again, accounts for probably around 60 or 70 percent of the cases of dementia. Uh, and so as the most common type, that tends to be the one that people focus on the most. It's easy to feel alone when caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease, but there are resources available to help you through. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with Carrie Harriet, Kathy Harriet, I'm sorry, of the Alzheimer's Association to learn more. 
The Alzheimer's Association, the focus of the association is to provide care and support to families, to family caregivers, to people with the disease and to professionals who serve those individuals. We provide a multitude of services, um, very specific to Alzheimer's and dementia. Probably the most important service that we provide to people is our 24-7 helpline. The helpline um, operates out of our home office location in Chicago. The staff of that helpline are all master's level clinicians and specialists. That helpline operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So people, whether it's a person with a disease, a family member, maybe it's a CNA who's working in a care facility, anyone who has a question, a problem, a challenge, can call that helpline and get the support they need. Additionally, we offer uh, caregiver support groups, support groups for individuals who have Alzheimer's or other dementias. Uh, those groups right now are all virtual. And the advantage to that actually is that someone can log into a virtual support group anywhere in the US. If we happen not to have a specialty group that they're looking for, we can certainly help them locate one somewhere else. We also provide education programs about the disease, about supporting the caregivers, a multitude of areas uh, related to Alzheimer's and dementia. Those programs are also offered virtually, and right now we're offering those on a regional basis. So we have a monthly calendar of offerings that's available to families. And then we also provide care consultation services. So usually at some point during the disease, either right after diagnosis or even midway through the disease, there might be some issues that the family needs to resolve. And so I can meet with them virtually or on conference call to help them work through whatever those questions might be, whatever those issues might be. Well, that was great information. I mean, what a wonderful resource for everybody to have the Alzheimer's Association there to offer resources to families and patients suffering with the disease. So that's a, a great thing. So um, we have a whole bunch of questions here. So let's uh, let's get started. Um, Let's see. Oh, here, uh, this is a good one. This kind of relates. We were talking a little bit before the, sh the break about um, Alzheimer's disease and how it's a subtype of dementia. And here we have a viewer from Sioux Falls asking, what about frontal lobe dementia? Can we, can we describe that? And how is it different from Alzheimer's disease? I'm going to direct that one to you, Matt. Sure. So uh, frontal temporal lobar degeneration is um, another degenerative neurologic disorder that uh, results in, in dementia. Uh, it actually has two sort of major subtypes. Um, one has to do with uh, progressive loss of language function. So the medical term is aphasia, but uh, those patients will present with uh, progressive uh, loss of their language. Um, the other is um, uh, what's called the behavioral variant, meaning that 
it primarily causes change in a person's behavior, not necessarily their memory uh, and their ability to do other things, but they can have uh, significant behavioral changes. And so that, that's a, a, um, a very distinct uh, from the typical Alzheimer's presentation. Excellent. Here, this is a good one, I think, particularly for you, David. A viewer from Facebook asks, does depression make dementia come faster? That's a great question. Uh, there have been some suggestions over time that depression could potentially uh, accelerate uh, dementia, that it, it's frequently a symptom that accompanies several different types of dementia, both the, kind of the classical that we think about as Alzheimer's, but uh, often going along with what we would think of as uh, more atypical subcortical type dementias like Parkinson's. Um, in terms of uh, making it come faster, sometimes it can even mimic uh, dementia. So we, we have a, con a condition that's sometimes called pseudo-dementia, where patients will present with many of the symptoms of dementia uh, in the context of having a severe depression. Uh, and unlike uh, dementia, uh, if you treat the depression successfully, uh, cognition typically recovers in this case. That's always a big question for me when I see my patients that I've known for a long time have struggled with de depression. You know, is this dementia developing or is this someone whose depression is escaping control? And sometimes that's very difficult to tease out. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Uh, here is a question um, from someone via email. My dad is starting to tell the same stories over and over. Should I tell him he's repeating himself or just go with the flow? I'm going to direct that one to you, David, too. Sure. Yeah, sometimes uh, people repeating themselves can be a sign of some cognitive trouble. Uh, and I, I don't know that I would always automatically make that assumption. I'd be looking for other signs or symptoms that they might be uh, running into some difficulty. But that, that could be uh, an early sign. Okay. We call it the tape loop. All right, uh, a caller asks, Lupron is a drug with dementia side effects. If I stop taking this, will I still have a higher chance of getting dementia? And I'm gonna direct that one to you, Matt. What do you think about Lupron oh. and long-term consequences? I'm not specifically familiar with Lupron, although I would say it probably doesn't cause dementia, so to speak, but it might cause um, cognitive impairment that would hopefully be temporary uh, so, such that once the drug is, re is removed. Um, but I would have to look into the specifics for Lupron. But I think it does address that very large topic of how various medications and other substances can impact uh, brain health uh, and brain functioning. Um, there are many drugs out there, unfortunately, that have what you could call cognitive side effects, meaning that they interfere with normal brain functioning. And some of them are remarkably common medications. Um, for example, it's been in the news just recently about um, diphenhydramine or Benadryl, people you know, familiar with that. It's a common over-the-counter medication, how that can impact elderly people in, in particular. Um, but there are many medications that can impact uh, cognitive functioning. And one of the most important things we do when we see patients for concerns about their memory or concerns about their cognition is to uh, review what medicines they're taking. And, and I'm sure Dr. Schlegel can give lots of good examples, but 
there are, are uh, an amazing number of medications that uh, will impact um, cognitive functioning. And, and unfortunately, um, a number of patients are taking quite a number of medications and they actually can have kind of an additive effect, you know, if they're taking sedatives and, and painkillers and um, different sorts of medications for, you know, muscle relaxants and really quite a broad spectrum of medications. And so one of the first things that we end up doing when we see patients is to try and determine whether they really need all of these things or not, or whether we can take, you know, eliminate some of them. Um, and so I think Dr. Schlegel's input would be of interest in, in his experience about the effect of medications. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with everything that you've mentioned. I would say that uh, as a, a person who sees a lot of geriatric uh, patients uh, and geriatric trained, uh, one of the tasks that I have that people sometimes don't like is to go through and suggest removing medications instead of adding something new. Uh, it's hard to overemphasize how much uh, risk is generated by some of these drugs. Um, you know, what we call uh, anticholinergic effects of many different medications increase risk. Uh, sedative medications, benzodiazepines and their derivatives uh, often are a significant risk. Um, you know, uh, and the, the anticholinergic uh, drugs in particular, a lot of them are over the counter. That's the diphenhydramine is antihistamine anticholinergic effect. Um, and that's, uh, you know, as uh, Dr. Simmons mentioned, uh, that's uh, a very, very commonly used medication. Uh, you know, we see a lot of people in the clinic who have sleeping difficulties. Mm -hmm. And worldwide, diphenhydramine is the most commonly used sleeping medication and used quite a bit in the U.S. Uh, you see that in Tylenol PM, Ibuprofen PM, NyQuil, ZQuil. That's the sleeping ingredient in all of those. And again, extremely commonly used. Uh, just for sleep, much less for uh, using it for allergies or things of that nature. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, both over-the-counter and prescription medications, uh, we, we don't typically see agents that offer protective effect. We're usually commenting on things that... That get rid of... Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, this is a, a good question that I think we're all going to be very interested in the answer to. Someone from Sioux Falls asking, can the effects of COVID impact the early onset of dementia. Boy, we're in the wild west right now, gentlemen. What it, Matt, what do you think? What's Well, your... what, I, what I'm hearing is that a number of patients are gonna have lingering effects following recovery from COVID. And we know that the, the COVID infection can affect the brain in a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, I don't think we know that it's gonna cause permanent damage um, it's too, it's kind of too early to tell, um, but we know from past experience when there have been other epidemics of viral infections that there have been some patients who developed more or less permanent um, brain damage. And so I think everyone's kind of on edge as to what the aftermath of this is gonna be. Um, I was just reading the other day that at some of the larger centers, some larger urban centers, they even have neurology clinics devoted exclusively to taking care of, of COVID patients with uh, residual um, brain um, deficits uh, following their recovery from the acute infection. So this is a, a big unknown. Uh, I think there's a lot of concern about what the after effects are going to be and whether there's gonna be a number of folks who are permanently impaired in some capacity. 
Um, so I, I think there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, the future, like what are we going to see um, if we get, you know, if and when we get through this pandemic, the acute phase of it anyways, you know, what are going to be the long acting effects of this and really time's going to tell. I had read something very recently even about increased risk of anxiety, depression, psychiatric issues after COVID recovery beyond what you'd expect for recovery from any critical life-threatening injury or illness. So um, here was a question that I thought was, was a very good one here. A caller from Sioux Falls wants to know what the correlation is between doing poorly in school at a young age and forgetting things at an older age. I'm going to direct that to you, David. Uh, <laughs> the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of times if you're talking about doing poorly in school uh, as a child, uh, you want to look out for signs of learning disorders, uh, whether or not there might be an undiagnosed ADHD um, or other impacts, uh, intellectual disabilities that haven't been identified. Uh, and, and there is some data to suggest that uh, some of those issues, because they can cause lifelong cognitive difficulties in some cases, um, could influence some long-term risk, but I, I don't think that those would be major risk factors. Um, there are some things that, that peripherally touch on that. Uh, I, I don't think that we brought it up uh, earlier at all, but uh, for example, um, you know, in the, the realm of uh, diseases that can cause some cognitive impairments, uh, trisomy 21, uh, mm. a Down syndrome uh, is frequently identified uh, as being a major cause of early onset Alzheimer's disease uh, and one of the, the big risk factors in that group. Um, that, that's only peripherally related to this, but um, again, that's a circumstance where there's more specific answer. Good. All right. Uh, I was going to add a com I was going to add a comment about that. I think um, this also speaks to the idea of cognitive reserve. Um, you know, if, if when we think of dementia as being a condition where someone loses enough cognition such that they're no longer able to function normally, independently, you know, at work, at home, etc. If they, you know, if they if they have developed dementia, um, there there is a fair amount of information out there about folks who can sort of build up their cognitive reserve. Um, for example, we had talked about earlier about, you know, learning new things and, and, and basically um, advanced education and expertise and doing whatever you do in life. Um, so if you take someone who sort of starts out with struggling academically, you know, struggling to learn, struggling to gain new information, they probably don't have the um, amount of reserve capacity such that when they develop some kind of brain condition later in life, whether it's a little stroke or, or the beginning of, uh, of a degenerative process, um, they're, they're, they're more likely to dip into a, 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 a demented condition um, than someone who has much more cognitive reserve. I think this next question is a really good one to kind of introduce our next little little segment here. A question came in via email asking, do you have any recommendations for helping a father with Alzheimer's deal with big changes? We recently took his car away as he should not be driving and he is very angry and we are not sure how to deal with this. He is calling in the evenings claiming he needs to go to work, not the case, he is 86. 
Do we need to try to rationalize and explain or should we basically go with the flow and tell them we will be right there with the car, for example, even though it's not true? How do you advise your patients on that, David? Boy, that's a, that's a really tough question. Generally, I, I think that you really don't wanna get into the habit of lying to people or misleading them. Sometimes uh, you might need to diffuse a situation, uh, but I, I probably wouldn't um, you know, in, encourage uh, uh, kind of setting yourself up for some trouble with them later. Uh, so that, that is a tough one, but I, I think that if somebody is not safe to drive, if they've either had accidents or they've had a driving assessment uh, and it's determined that they're having some trouble, uh, then you need to take into account their safety and other people's safety first and foremost. Determining when someone with dementia should stop driving is a hard decision, but there are programs out there to help determine when it's time. Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt spoke with Jamie Dalkow with the Sanford's Driving, Driver Evaluation Program to dive in deeper about these tough decisions. So I'm an occupational therapist by background. So occupational therapy is really focuses on helping people maintain their independence and being able to participate in activities um, throughout their daily life, um, things that help them find meaning and value in order to engage at home in the community and work environments. So really the driving program that we have at Stanford is meant to be able to help people maintain their independence and community engagement with the focus on medical fitness to drive. So typically after somebody has a diagnosis of dementia, then a lot of times it's recommended that they have a driving evaluation to determine if they are safe to continue driving. There's a really clear consensus that individuals in the mild stages of dementia generally are safe to drive. There's also a very clear consensus that individuals who are in the severe um, stages of dementia are not safe to drive. And then there's this pocket in the middle uh, that, that there's kind of more of a gray area, those, those moderate severity cases. And that's really where we see a lot of our patients here at, at the driving program that typically will recommend an evaluation right upon diagnosis, which gives us a really good idea and baseline of somebody's cognitive performance, um, visual performance, and physical skills. And then we can follow that on a yearly basis so that we really can find a time to make sure that somebody can continue driving for as long as they safely can, that they don't stop driving too soon, but that they don't stop driving too late. So we really can hone in if we're, if we're doing an evaluation every nine to 12 months, then we can really um, gauge that a lot better. So a great resource that I like to use in my practice is actually a, a book that was developed by the Hartford um, Insurance Organization that it's called At the Crossroads and it's family conversations about Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and driving. So this is a, a book that I tend to give to every individual with dementia that I see at least on the first time and then we can certainly give them out after that. But it's really a, a great starting point for families to kind of start thinking about some things that might relate to not only driving but some of the other planning. And there's a great um, resource in it that, that I like to provide to people. And really, it's about the warning signs for drivers with dementia. 
in the booklet Jamie mentioned, which is called Safe Driving for a Lifetime at the Crossroads, there are clear warning signs about when it is time to stop driving. Some of the big ones are new scratches or dents on the car and loss of confidence when driving. If you have a loved one experiencing these warning signs, consider taking them to a driver evaluation test. And we've got a fair number of questions, gentlemen. I wanna to try to get to as many of them as we can here because they're all really good questions. Um, so here's one that I think uh, was particularly interesting. A caller from Sioux Falls, South Dakota is wondering what kind of condition causes people to see people and things that aren't there as a 95-year-old in her life has been experiencing this lately. Matt, can I turf that one to you? Sure, I'll take a shot at it, although I'm sure Dr. Schlegel has some ideas as some well. different perspectives. Um, in, in my practice, what what would if that if a person like that was being referred for me to look at um it, it's probably in the context of concern about that lewy body disease or lewy body dementia where visual hallucinations are one of the key features uh, of their presentation uh, of course there are other reasons why a patient might have hallucinations and i i think uh, dr slagel could um could give some other uh, clarification of that but but we, we end up seeing um, the Lewy body uh, disease patients because they also look like, they also tend to look like they have Parkinsonism, although it's different from Parkinson disease. Um, and so, um, but, but like I said, if, if we see them, that would be a referral to our neurology practice. There would be a question of Lewy body disease in, in, a, in a case of having visual hallucinations like that. Um, but I'll, I'd like, Dr. Schlegel might have a comment about, you know, other causes for why an elderly patient might have visual hallucinations. I, I know that if, if they're visually impaired or if they're on certain medications and things, um, but I, I would welcome his input. Yeah, I, I think if it was somebody who was experiencing visual hallucinations for the first time, a Lewy body would be at the top of the list. You'd also be looking for balance impairment, potentially Parkinsonian uh, symptoms. Um, sometimes we see the folks after they've already been treated by other providers, and, and you can glean some information from that. Certain medications they'll be very sensitive to, and that can be a clue as well. Um, other causes, uh, again, if it's, if it's new onset and they have cognitive impairment, occasionally we do see Alzheimer's patients with hallucinations. It's not very common, it's pretty rare, but that does happen. Um, probably a, a, another common cause, again, depending on the presentation, would be delirium. We see a fair number of cases of delirium in hospital settings for consult service, uh, but there are also uh, a few of these folks in the community who present uh, with uh, hallucinations and waxing and waning uh, presentation, cognitive impairment, disorientation, uh, and they can have psychotic symptoms, delusions, hallucinations. Uh, if the patient's had these symptoms for a while before they've intermittently had them in the past, it could be a sign that they have something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Uh, again, though, there would really need to be some previous history to suggest that. It'd be really uncommon for somebody to develop that kind of problem at 70, 90, in, in later age. Right. Um, there's a question here about that came in via email what do you gentlemen think about Prevagen? I'm gonna turf that back to you, Matt. Oh, sure. Um, well, unfortunately, it's one of 
one of those products that there's been a lot of marketing, you know, a lot of hype about how good it might be in terms of improving cognition. Um, I think actually the makers of Privagen uh, were, were somewhat reprimanded by, I'll say the FDA or, you know, some regulatory group got after them for making false claims basically. And I think our professional literature has backed that up uh, such that um, I tell patients, I say, well, you know, it really hasn't been shown scientifically to be beneficial. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of marketing and people do, do take it fairly commonly thinking that it's going to help them. Um, I don't think that it hurts them, although I understand it can be pricey for some people to pay for it. So my take on it is it really isn't something that I can, can recommend. It really isn't the type of scientific evidence that we like to see in terms of benefit. Um, so what, what do you think, Dr. Schlegel? I agree 100%. Yeah. I think we're all desperate for something that can affect the risk factors, and it's lovely to think that something as easy as taking a pill might help us, but unfortunately the easy answer is rarely the right one. So, um, A caller from Yankton has a very intelligent sister who did all the right things, kept her weight down, did crossword puzzles every day, but was still diagnosed with Alzheimer's at 68. The caller's mother also had Alzheimer's. Could this have been passed down genetically? Is there any real way to prevent dementia? So uh, there's a lot of data suggesting that there are modifiable risk factors. We've talked to, about some of these before. Uh, they include uh, cardiovascular exercise, uh, cognitive exercises, uh, social uh, contacts. Um, if you, and then managing cardiovascular disease risk factors and other risk factors. If you look at the modifiable risk factors, some of the studies suggest that they could account for up to a third of a person's risk for dementia. Um, that might be a little bit generous, but it's probably somewhere in that range. Uh, that means that uh, even if you do everything right, uh, you still can get Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia. Sometimes you just have bad luck. Yeah. So uh, here's a question. Uh, another caller wants to know how often is dementia associated with Parkinson's disease and is there any way to prevent people with Parkinson's from developing dementia? That's a great neurologist question. Sure. Um, the overall percentage is significant. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but certainly a, a large percentage of patients with Parkinson's disease will eventually get uh, a form of dementia or cognitive impairment. Uh, thankfully, the, it does, the disease doesn't typically start with that presentation. They uh, typically have to have Parkinson's disease for an extended period of time before they develop the cognitive aspects of it. As far as we know, at this point anyways, there isn't any particular way to prevent that. Uh, there are some strategies, there are some medications that are used to try and treat that um, in the same way that we treat dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, there are medications that can, you know, sort of uh, hopefully help somewhat, although they're not a cure, they don't reverse the disease. Um, but as far as I know, there is, is no way to prevent it. Now, the hope is, of course, that even with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, with all of these degenerative disorders, if we come to a better understanding of exactly what's happening, um, you know, genetically, what's happening uh, physiologically in terms of the, the physical changes in the body, 
you know, it's hoped that we would be able to intervene at some point. Um, maybe we're going to be intervening very early in life um, if we can, in a sense, predict uh, that someone's going to develop dementia. Like you gave that example of a, a mother-daughter, you know, both having uh, having what sounds like Alzheimer's disease. You know, maybe we're going to be able to tell who's at risk and that we would intervene, you know, much earlier in life. The unfortunate reality is once dementia has set in, there isn't a lot we can do to reverse that process um, or prevent it from getting worsening. Um, unfortunately, like some specialists will describe the medicines that we use for people with actual Alzheimer's disease are really more palliative. They don't reverse the disease. They hopefully slow it down and help the patient live independently for a longer period of time, but they really don't reverse the disease process. Uh, there, there's a lot of interest, a lot of research going now into um, like trying to prevent it in the first place, or if it is developing, how can we uh, reverse the process? Um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of medications that are in the pipeline being, you know, looking at, at that. Uh, we're not there yet, but um, I, I think, I guess I, I'm hopeful that we're going to be seeing some uh, substantial um, possibilities in the near future. I think we have time for one last question, um, and I'm going to direct this one to you, David. Uh, my mother has gotten lost while taking walks. I want her to move into assisted living, but she wants to stay in her home. What suggestions do you have? Again, that's, a, <laughs> that's a tough one. It's a pretty that's tough so one. so hard. Um, you know, and, and I, I think sometimes you can appeal to people toward their own best interest and their family and the community's interest. Sometimes, though, you have to be able to make a, a good argument to do that. Uh, and so finding out just how much trouble a person is having could be the first step to that. Uh, maybe they're really only having very mild difficulties, but maybe they're having more significant difficulties that they're covering up. Uh, uh, many of the folks uh, who ultimately go on to be diagnosed with dementia really have had some mild symptoms for, in many cases, years ahead of time, and they get very good at covering them up. Um, we try to convince people not to do that as much because we want to be able to identify things earlier if possible. Some of the interventions that can slow down a uh, disease process might be more effective if administered uh, earlier. Early you know, and uh, again, uh, as Matt mentioned, uh, you know, we do have some things that hopefully will make a bigger difference in coming years. We've got some uh, new uh, testing options that will be available hopefully soon. There's a new test actually, a blood test for Alzheimer's that uh, is just newly onto the market in recent weeks that was announced back in July. Um, that it will certainly hopefully make our diagnose, diagnostic process more straightforward. It's pretty complicated right now. Right. Okay, very quick, 10 second, uh, 10 second uh, answers, take away. Dr. Simmons, take away for our viewers, what would you like them to remember? Oh, um, I would like everyone to be uh, understanding of uh, the, the, the difficulty with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease and to take whatever strategies you can earlier in life to prevent uh, your, your uh, risk or to lower your risk of developing dementia Excellent. in the future. Five seconds. Uh, make sure that you are reaching out to people, that you have a lot of contact with people. Uh, that probably goes along with that preventative though. Excellent. Thank you so much, gentlemen.
And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question. Dementia is easily diagnosed with a blood test. True or false? And the answer is maybe not quite as straightforward, but false. The winner of tonight's quiz is Conda Green from Yale, South Dakota. Thank you, Conda, for participating. A book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. Extra, extra, read the Prairie Doc Perspectives weekly column in your local newspaper. More than 130 newspapers in the region print the newspaper column written by the Prairie Docs, covering a variety of medical and health-related topics. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc Perspectives. I was very young when my grandfather suffered his first stroke and began his battle with vascular dementia. I grew up understanding that he was not like the other adults in my life. He would take me on long walks around the neighborhood, but it was never entirely clear who was supervising who. He rarely had much to say, and when he did, it didn't make sense. He communicated mostly through gestures and sometimes unnerved my cousins and I with his uncertain temper. With the benefit of age and experience, I appreciate now how frustrated he was and what a Herculean task my grandmother took on. Medicine has made progress in the nearly 40 years since my grandfather's death. We are better at preventing strokes and mitigating the after effects. We are better at distinguishing between the diseases that cause dementia. We even have treatments for some of those causes, however disappointing those treatments are. We are better at addressing related challenges such as sleep disruption and depression. We are better at guiding families as they struggle with difficult decisions like when to stop driving. Families struggle when they know dad is not safe behind the wheel or at home, but dad thinks everything is fine. One of the many things that dementia steals from people is the ability to grasp their condition. Some patients are skilled at hiding the extent of their impairment. Sometimes spouses fill in the gaps, so problems are less noticeable to the rest of the family. Patients can hide troubles from their doctors, too, so it is critically important that families and care teams maintain communication. Just like many fully capable adults, dementia patients may fiercely resist the involvement of others in their business, and many suffer for it. One of my patients hid her impairment until she was conned out of her entire savings. Another minimized his symptoms until the family got a call from a stranger saying their father had gotten lost behind the wheel. Overruling the wishes of your adult parent can be difficult, but when we recognize their vanishing judgment, intervening is the loving and sometimes the life-saving thing to do. Much of my lifetime, I've watched my father worry 
about his own memory. This is a common concern for people who have seen a loved one struggle with dementia. I hope that someday we will have more to offer, but there is no magic pill. For now, the best we can do is give you the same advice you hear from us on virtually every other topic. Eat a healthy diet, get exercise, keep your brain active, and welcome support from those who love you. A big thank you to our guests, Drs. Matthew Simmons and David Schlegel for volunteering their time to help us learn more about our minds, memory, and aging. And that does it for tonight. From all of us here on call at the Prairie Dock, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Retirement can be a stressful and anxious time, not being sure of what comes next. However, with some planning for activities, mental and physical health, the transition can be a smooth one. Excelling in retirement next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello to all. I am Dr. Tom Luzier, a practicing allergist in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Born in Kansas, I embraced the diversity of South Dakota. This diversity comes with a price limited health care resources and information. The Healing Words Foundation through Prairie Doc provides an open, online, interactive, public broadcasting format for reliable health information. As a member of the Healing Words Foundation board, I am asking you please to join me in support of this work, which is funded entirely by donations from you. Please consider making a personal or corporate gift to Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3. Go to prairie.org and click on the donate button and make a valuable contribution. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.